with crossing. And then wide, brilliant finish! And here's the danger. Sam Kerr is away. Is this to be her moment? Miedemar! And Vivian Miedemar scores again. Welcome to Football 51 with everything you need to know about the football played by 51% of the population, women. We'll bring you all the reaction to the Lionesses' underwhelming international break and be asking if we should still be believing in Phil Neville. We'll also be chatting about coronavirus and equal pay for the US women's national team. That's all coming up on this episode of Football 51. So the last two weeks have been taken up by the international calendar. It's been the She Believes Cup. So that's where USA, England, Spain and Japan all faced off in America. USA came out victorious and it was a disappointing performance from England who ended up third. Spain a surprising second and Japan hosts of the Olympics lingering in fourth. Here's all the highlights from all England's action and then what Phil Neville had to say. World champions ahead. Too much room, too much time, too much space. England pay the penalty. 1-0 to the USA, seven minutes into the second half. Christian Press. Press. Run again. Oh, lovely ball. Carly Lloyd. And that's what she does so supremely well. One of the greatest goal scorers the game has ever known. And she makes it 2-0 to the USA. This could be an opening. Duggan, White! And there it is. Finally the breakthrough. With eight minutes left of normal time. Another huge error from Japan. Hermoso's delivery. It's a good header. And Spain have the lead. Alexia Puteas with her second goal of the tournament. And England trails Spain by a goal to nil. It's a real good header, real powerful into the top corner. Carly Telford can't do anything about it. Decent delivery, got enough power on, but what a header from Pateas. Some good individual performances, but ultimately we, we will be judging our results. Uh, you know, I'm not going to hide behind the fact that this was a tournament where we wanted to experiment with the younger players. They've come in and they've been really well. Uh, they've done really well. Ultimately, we'll be judging our results, and I, I don't think the results have been good enough, and I take full responsibility for that. Yeah, Phil Neville there saying that he will accept full responsibility for the underwhelming performance of the Lionesses in this year's She Believes Cup. It was very disappointing for England. They lost their opener to the USA. Quite embarrassingly, after you think about how close it was last year in Lyon between the two nations, obviously England were a VAR decision away, I don't know, the, the, the length of Ellen White's toenail away from equalising in that game and also the Steph Horton spot kick on the night. It was so tight, so close between the two. In this game, the USA dominated completely. It was sad to see the Lionesses playing so inferior to the great American team that we've all become accustomed to seeing, given how close we were just a year ago. And for me, it all came from the defensive structure. I have to look at the way 
they chose to put Leah Williamson at right back. It was, for me, a wrong decision. Obviously, Lucy Bronze is out injured. So the favourite to play there was Rachel Daly, but Phil Neville took the decision to play Leah Williamson there, a position she's not really played in. She's normally a centre-back or a central midfielder. And that meant that we didn't really have the playing out from the back options that we normally do. What worked really well in the semi-final last year was Steph Horton spraying balls out to Beth Mead, and that's what led to the assist for the first goal for Ellen White, and that just wasn't a thing that we could do against the USA this time around, who were able to dominate the midfield, they were able to pack it centrally, and there was not much we could do. Kristen do you Press, think missing Beth Mead and um, and Lucy Bronze was the key then? Potentially. I think it's quite difficult to say. Lucy Bronze is obviously a big miss because she's probably the best right-back in the world and any team is going to miss her. Beth Mead, I think we've got players who've come in since last year, such as your Lauren Hemps, for example, Chloe Kelly's player like that, who can cut out, cut in from the wing in the same way that Beth Mead did last summer. And Tony Duggan, who's obviously been doing it for years as well. Players like that who can do things like that of immense quality. Missing Lucy Bronze might have been one of the reasons, but I don't think that was the sole reason. I think the tactical decision to try and play out from the back towards the right-hand side rather than just going long and bypassing England's midfield was a real problem in the game and it allowed the USA to dominate us in a way that they just weren't able to do last summer. What did you think about Phil Neville's choice of playing Ellen White rather than Beth England? It made sense to me. I, I get why he wants to stick with a player who's never let him down in the past. You know, she scored so many goals in the World Cup last year. She's still scored goals for the international team this year and the six friendlies ever since. She's a good player. She's fantastic. She takes chances. She doesn't normally miss them. So I get it. She's It's, it's a nice problem for Phil Neville to have. What I didn't agree with was him saying that it was disrespectful to Ellen White to suggest that Beth England be called up. In the aftermath of the Japan game, Beth England was chosen to start, but Phil Neville came out afterwards and said that it was disrespectful of the press to be saying that Ellen White shouldn't be starting purely because of the fact that Ellen White's done so much. But if you look at Beth England's scoring records this season for Chelsea in domestic level, you've got to say she's been banging on the door. And I think everyone who's been saying that she should be in the team is well within their rights to do so. I don't understand why he doesn't try and play two at the front because he's saying, oh, that's not our the way we're set up. Maybe we'll consider it in the future. Half of England's problem in the whole of the She Believes Cups was not getting the final touch on the on those brilliant crosses. Like the midfield worked so well and then you're not getting the final touch. If you've got two in-form, very good strikers, why don't you play two up front? I have to agree with the fact that the midfield worked so well and I think the reason the midfield worked so well is because you've got three bodies in there that you wouldn't have if you played a second person up top. So it would have to be a 4-4-2 unless Phil Neville chooses to go to a back three, which is not something he's ever shown any indication that he wants to do. So... As long as he wants to have a two, a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 as his midfield option, he's going to need to play just one striker up top, and that appears to be his preferred style of play, which means that only one of Beth England or Ellen White can play at the same time. I think it will be all right, actually, because I think sometimes the structure has sort of moved into a 4-1-4-1, like with Williamson or Walsh in the back. So if you improved England's central defence, which is another topic of discussion, but if you have that, if they're used to the 4-1-4-1, if you have 4-4-2, they maybe wouldn't be so out of position with that. Potentially. I think just when it comes to games against the bigger teams and teams who are more possessionally focused like your Japan's like your Spain's you're going to need to have an extra person in midfield just to dominate the midfield because England have got good midfielders good ball playing midfielders you think of Jordan Nobbs you think of Leah Williamson when she plays in that position you think of uh, Georgia Stanway Lauren Hemp players like that who can all play in the middle and do a very good job of it to me it makes sense to have three people in there rather than two 
but I do get why you'd want to have two fantastically informed strikers on the pitch. I think what I was really excited about for this game was um, Dawn Scott. So Dawn Scott is a sports scientist and she is considered the best of the best. She spent nine years as the head of sports science for England women. Then she moved to the USA and she essentially transformed the USA women's team. I mean, they, they were already very good, but they're prided on their fitness. And she's just brought these kind of Apparently, she's very focused on these 1% gains. So just the small margins that she can improve in people's games. And now she's come back to the England squad um, as their new sports scientist. And this was her first game with them. And it's against the USA, where she came from. And I think everyone was very excited to say, OK, we've now got this, you know, we've got your star fitness coach, sports scientist. Maybe now we can challenge you. But actually, it turned out to be a little bit premature and you couldn't see the effects of Dawn Scott yet because it's only been a couple of months. So potentially England have room for improving there and that might be you know, something that would help them for upcoming Olympics and, and Euros. It's interesting that you mentioned the marginal gains that England are trying to make when it comes to catching up with your USA's, your Germany's, your Netherlands at the very top of the women's game. But you have to say the fact that they lost to Spain in that last game seems to suggest that England are actually regressing under Phil Neville. When he first came in, he said, you know, judge me by these big games, these ones that are going to be played against the top teams. England are sixth in the world, obviously, but the other top five teams in the world, those are the games that are going to matter. No disrespect to the other nations in the women's game, but when it comes down to it, those are the things that you remember. And Phil Neville's only won one game against a team ranked above him, and now he started losing games against teams ranked below him. For me, that's just evidence that he's regressed. I think that's a really good point. Definitely works with Japan, who are ranked four places below England. And Japan also lost in the round of 16 in the World Cup. You know, we we definitely should have beaten them. So England had quite a few chances, actually. Um, Early on, Beth England sent a ball through to Lauren Hemp, and she should have scored. Beth England had a few chances, but then the goal eventually came actually from a Japanese defensive error, which Tony Duggan picked up, and then she sent a great curling ball right onto Ellen White's left foot, which she just touched in, and that's classic Ellen White, isn't it? But they're just beating Japan by a very small margin Yeah, like you say, so even that itself has just come from a defensive error rather than fantastic play from England. They didn't look like they were going to break Japan down unless it was an error or something fantastic from one of England's world-class players and for me tactically the setup again meant that England were able to utilize their strengths you know England's strengths are in the midfield and up front but Phil Neville doesn't seem to be able to organize a team that can get the best out of star players Nikita Paris again this tournament was very underwhelming and you know you have to look at things like that and question whether he is taking the team forward like he said he would especially given there's a home Euros coming up next year as things stand you know we might come on to that a bit later in the show when we're talking about coronavirus and you have to wonder whether Phil Neville is the man to get the best out of this team going forward yeah I think it's I think it's really tricky to tell isn't it you know he was trying to bring the young talent forward the starting lineup against Japan had an average age of 21 but then suddenly about 60 69 minutes in he suddenly replaces them all he is saying, oh, I gave them a bit of a chance and now the old guard need to come on. Well, maybe, but are you actually giving them a chance if you manage to do that, if you're doing that? Like, that's not, that's not letting them see the game through, is it, really? How much experience are you giving them if you only let them play 60 minutes? And what I think is really interesting is the game against Spain, which England lost, 
you know, they actually had a very old guard of forwards. You know, they started they started with, you know, Ellen White up front and then the four, Paris, uh, Nikita Paris, Jordan Nobbs, Jill Scott, Tony Duggan, that's very experienced. And yet they still couldn't make anything happen, could they? So Phil Neville's got this really odd balance where he's sort of saying, oh, you know, I'll try the, the new ones. And then the old guard that he brings in to try and save him actually how how good are they really you need to mix and match a little bit more rather than just doing it all at the same time I definitely agree with that and I think that you know we're we're a team in transition which is fine especially given that the old guard is moving out and the younger generation is coming through but how long is that transition going to take because when it came to the world cup last summer we could see how close we were and we just needed a few extra extra bits and pieces just to push us over the edge to becoming that team that actually wins on those big occasions. Now we're going backwards. We're so far away from teams like the USA. And this, for me, the She Believes Cup, last episode I predicted that we'd win it. I'm a fool. <laughs> I'm a fool. We didn't even come second, you know? That's, that's how much we seem to be going backwards for me. I know I've mentioned it a lot, but I just don't feel positive when I look at this team. I don't feel that they're going forward under this tactical direction. And for me... I think it's genuinely time to start asking questions about Phil Neville's future. The FA say that he will be keep his job for the foreseeable future. That's his seventh defeat in 11 games, but he still has 15 months remaining on his contract. If you replaced him now, it would be probably all right for the Euros, but leaving it any longer is, is a bit of a tough ask for the new manager, I think. Definitely. I think time needs to be given to a new person to come in if they are going to come in. So the FA needs to act quickly if they are going to do anything at all. Hi, I'm Sophie Engel. You're listening to Football 51. Away from the USA in France, another tournament was happening, the Tournoi de France. This was the first year that it happened. France, the Netherlands, Brazil and Canada produced a star-studded lineup to rival the She Believes Cup, but it was a bit bizarre in terms of results. Definitely, France were the only team that actually won in the tournament. They won two games out of three, giving them seven points in the end. The Netherlands managed to draw all three of their games. Brazil drew two, Canada drew two, and they both lost one game. So good, good for France, I guess. Happy days for them, but a very strange tournament all round. Lots of draws. The Netherlands will be disappointed, though, with their performance. Having reached the final of the World Cup in the summer, they would have wanted to to get on that score sheet. So that that will be disappointing, and especially scoring three goals in the last in the final. You know, you would have thought that that would have been enough. But then France scoring the equaliser in injury time—that's just that's just really tough, isn't it, for a team that hasn't even got one that hasn't even got one win in the tournament. Scotland were also in action in the Pinatar Cup. They had three wins out of three against Iceland, Ukraine and Northern Ireland. I think you should preface that by saying the mighty Iceland, Ukraine and Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, the mighty, the mighty. Northern Ireland picked up zero points for their big matches ahead of their European qualifiers. And now, listeners, on to the time that you've all been waiting for. We know you were worried that there wasn't going to be a player of the week or a team of the week, given that it's international break. Don't worry, we've got you covered. Sophie and I have both been scouring through 
the She Believes Cup to find our player of the tournament and our team of the tournament. For me, player of the tournament is Kristen Press. Fantastic goal against England. Goals in the other games. Amazing world-class player who is, you know, Mega Rapinoe's getting on a bit now. So if you think about the long term for the USA, the fact that they have this conveyor belt of fantastic players who just seem to be coming out all the time. She's the next generation of fantastic player to the next generation of sporting superstar that's going to be one of the, the, the shining lights of the US women's national team for a long time to come. I've gone for a player in, in the Spanish team because I've been really impressed with Spain. You know, they only just lost to the USA. And I think they're a really interesting up-and-coming squad who are going to be very, very good to watch in the Olympics if it happens and, and the Euros going forward as well. So I've gone for Alexia Puteas. Um, everyone who's English is going to hate me for that choice because she's the one who scored the header against England. <laughs> but she scored Spain's first goal against uh, Japan in the eighth minute. And she was also crowned player of the tournament of the She Believes Cup. So I haven't stolen my choice, but, you know, me and uh, me and the She Believes organisers think the same. I think she just really made the difference for Spain. She was a great attacking threat and she's one to look out for. Do we agree on the team of the tournament, though? For me, the team of the tournament has to be the USA. They're streets ahead of everyone else when it comes to international football at the minute. It's hard to look beyond them. Yeah, Spain ran them close, but ultimately it was the USA who were the best team. They were the winners, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, I agree with you. I was really impressed with the USA's performances. Their goals were creative, and they've got so much talent, haven't they? It's almost unfair. Now on to the big story that seems to be dominating the entire world, not just the world of sport. But <laughs> so much news. Everything. We couldn't. We thought about not talking about it, and we had a discussion about whether we should bring it up, but it is the main story in the world. You may not have heard, but there's a virus going around called the coronavirus. You may have noticed in my voice it's quite heavy breathing, a bit of a wheezy cough. That is because I am currently suffering some of the symptoms. I'm in self-isolation at the minute, which is why the sound quality of this podcast might be a bit different to what you're used to. Yeah, we are not together. I decided not to take the risk. Yeah, to seek Sophie care. very sensibly decided to stay at home. I'm self-isolating at the minute. So we're on Skype, which is why it might be a little bit different from what you're used to. But, you know, we're making do. We're, we're trying to provide quality content for you listeners, even in these tough times. And even though the football has been suspended, so all elite football uh, was suspended last week until the 3rd of April. So that's the WSL, the Championship, the FA Cup. On Tuesday, UEFA will meet to discuss whether the Champions League fixtures go ahead that were set for the 25th of March and the 1st of April. In Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, they banned women's football. And on Monday, they announced that the National League and all grassroots football should be stopped as well. So pretty much grinding to a halt in the women's football calendar and indeed the whole sporting calendar for the moment. Yeah, it's very interesting to think of something that's not really been discussed in what this fixture pileup means for the women's game is what this will mean for next summer in terms of the Euros. So if you look at the men's game, there's talk about postponing the men's Euros, which is supposed to take place across the whole continent of Europe. For me, that makes perfect sense to postpone that. You know, you can't have fans travelling across from country to country in times like these. It just can't be done. It's not safe. And if it's going to cause problems, then it needs to be stopped. Health is the most important thing when it comes to times like this. 
That means that it might be postponed until next summer when the Women's Euros is set to take place. The problem being, of course, there that both finals are set to take place at Wembley Stadium. So if it comes down to it, which one will get priority? Will they have to... It really worries me. It's worrying in the sense that the Women's Euros may end up playing understudy sort of to the Men's Euros next summer. You know, the focus was supposed to be on it in the UK. A home Euros would be great here because it means we get more coverage of the women's game more spotlight on it now that looks unlikely to happen if the tournament is suspended till next summer and beyond that domestically all of the fixture pilots means that how is it going to finish so how are we going to have the title race which we've been speaking about we've been excited about it so much of the wsl how's that going to finish how are they going to decide who comes in the champions league places because you've got three top teams fighting for two spots how are we going to decide who gets relegated there's so many problems that have been thrown up by this virus i know Obviously, it's a deadly virus and it's killing people, and that is the saddest thing and the main focus that we should all be worried about. When it comes to a sporting front, it's causing some serious headaches as well. I agree. I What's actually worried me is a lot of people just talking about, oh, the Euros might be, the men's Euros might be postponed a year, and then so few people have picked up on the fact that actually the women's Euros was meant to happen. And I know people say they respect the women's game, but when you put it up against the men's game, there's no way it can compete in terms of, you know, viewing figures, how much income that's going to bring into the country. You know, there'll be commercial concerns, won't there? Won't there if, you know, if the Euros doesn't go ahead? I mean, I'm currently working at ITV on a team who are planning the Euros and have been planning the ITV coverage of the Euros since, I don't even know, since last year. So actually, these kind of things have incredibly big effects also because if, say, the BBC is meant to cover the men's Euros and the women's Euros, how's that? How's that going to work out? You know, does that mean they need to give the women's Euros rights to someone else? I have no idea. But I just think people need to be really aware of how detrimental that could be for the women's game and whether it's worth considering, I don't know, playing the men's Euros in winter. I, that's a bit difficult. I think also the WSL um, has had problems, you know, they've had a lot of matches postponed because of bad pitches already. A lot of the fixtures that have been cancelled in the coming weeks were actually replays of old matches. So that's going to be very difficult. You know, after the set postponed date, there's only actually three big weekends of WSL action left. And it's the same question with the men's game. Do you, you know, do you make it null and void season? Chelsea would be disappointed with that. Well, so, so would many other teams, but... I'm no scientist and it may shock you to know I'm no expert on this thing but I have to look at it and I see the fact that it's not appearing to slow down in the UK it appears to be getting that the measures are becoming a lot more severe in terms of the crackdown to try and stop coronavirus and spreading so it appears that the games may even be postponed from beyond this April 3rd April 4th deadline that has been put in place already it's looking quite lightly in fact so I'd be amazed if we see any football before May so the spanner that throws into the works of this finely poised fixturing schedule that we've got going on, it's almost impossible to know the kind of damage this will reap on the women's game in general. Interestingly, actually, Phil Neville was quite concerned when the Lionesses came back from the She Believes Cup that they were flying back on an economy plane because, not an economy plane, but, you know, flying back with everyone, not on a chartered plane and therefore they might risk catching the coronavirus. I mean, it's quite fortunate that the She Believes Cup happened when it did, because 
otherwise it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been able to take place would it um so that's another interesting question for the fa about how they how they deal with that i'm glad that they cancelled women's football at the same time as men's football even though it doesn't attract quite as big a crowds because i know crowds are a big concern when deciding about what to postpone obviously national league being postponed a weekend later i think what an interesting point is are they just saying postponed because they don't want to deal with the consequences or are they saying postponed because it really is postponed because the fixture calendar next year is going to be absolutely mental if everything is being postponed and actually goes ahead like how many sporting events they're going to have to play replay matches of the players just are going to be exhausted and yeah, I mean the sports journalists will be happy because they have a lot of work but hmm. It would be it would be very difficult, I think. Short term pain for long term gain when it comes to sports journalists. But yeah, you're right. In terms of admin, it's an absolute nightmare. Solutions wise, I can't see a more practical solution than declaring the whole season null and void. Because if you can't finish the season, then it can't be viewed as a complete season. I know it's very harsh on you say in the women's game, Man City are top of the league right now. It'd be very harsh on them, of course, to not be given a title that technically would be rightfully theirs but then when you look at the bottom of the league teams like Liverpool and Bristol City who are fighting for that bottom relegation place and Birmingham as well who we'll come on to later they would quite rightly have grounds to say well how hang on how come they get the title but we still have to be relegated you know things like that are very important because it's it's, it's totally unfair to relegate teams early and to give titles early especially when they're as finely balanced as they are in the WSL. It's not like other leagues where, if you look at the French League, for example, Lyon are so far ahead of everyone else. In England, there are three teams that genuinely could win the league this season. And to decide that just on where they are now and purely because of a a coincidence of timing is ridiculous in my view. is also something that could be used to describe something that's happened in US soccer at the moment. As part of the legal papers submitted by lawyers from US soccer in the lawsuit around equal pay for the US women's team, they said, quote, that the job of a male footballer on a national team requires a higher level of skill based on speed and strength. Than female football. They also said that female footballers have fewer responsibilities. So a little bit of background to this, you know, gender pay lawsuit. 28 players in the US women's national team took legal action on the 8th of March 2019. They're looking for equal pay and they're suing for $66 million in damages for lost earnings. Just to set the scene, the women's side are four-time world champions. They have five Olympic gold medals. They actually generated $1.9 million more income than the men's side from 2016 to 2018. And they had about 2,000 people average higher attendance than the men's team. Uh, Now, the men's team actually fully supports what the women's team are doing. And there was a huge, huge outrage when these comments about, you know, the female players are less skilled and they have fewer responsibilities came out. It seems a strange position for the US Football Federation to take. 
especially given it's it's so 1970s in its wording you think these legal experts these slick lawyers that they seem to probably be able to afford would surely have been able to come up with wording that would be less of a PR disaster than this but aside from the PR it's just wrong it's incorrect if you look at the skill levels of the US women's national team and the men's team as you mentioned before the women's team have been far more successful over a prolonged period of time they've won the World Cup four times the men's team's never got past the quarterfinals so quite frankly when it comes to that there is no real for me in the case of the US national team there is no dispute that the men's and women's teams should be getting paid equally just as they are in Australia. Quite interestingly, the women's team refused to accept any sort of apology that was brandished from the USFA about their shocking comments, really. And Megan Rapino did an interview saying that she didn't accept the apology because of the standard it sets. And in the She Believes Cup we were talking about earlier, the women's national team decided to wear their jerseys inside out so that you could see those four stars which they've won that the men's team haven't got on their crest but you couldn't see the badge because at the end of the day when it comes to that sort of pay it should be based on the quality of football you're providing and the women's team has been more successful than the men's team I think they're perfectly within their rights to claim equal pay I thought that was a really powerful message like hiding the US soccer logo but having the World Cup stars visible just showing like we're doing this for ourselves we can do this and the president of US soccer resigned three days after the comments came out. And um, now Cindy Paolo Cohn, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, has replaced um, Carlos Cordero. And it's actually quite interesting because she is the first female president in the US soccer history and she won the 1999 World Cup and two Olympic gold medals. So, you know, maybe there's a chance for a female trailblazer to come in after after him. But obviously you'd never want those comments to happen. And, all, and I think what really surprised me with Megan Rapinoe was she's saying actually the comments are not surprising this is the this is basically the embodiment of what they've been saying they just haven't said it quite as explicitly and that is the that is the point isn't it they're just saying we don't value you as much because we don't think you're as good which is ridiculous but what's interesting is the amount of revenue they generate like that's absolutely not comparable you know the the amount of and the attendances but what we're saying here is actually they generate the women in the US generated more revenue and they had higher attendances so what US soccer has said is that they have offered an equal pay package for matches that are under their control but they didn't offer compensation for the difference in the prize money paid to men and women's teams at the World Cup so just to put it in context last year the men's World Cup champions uh, France in 2018 received $38 million the US women's team for winning the World Cup last summer received $4 million so what the US women are asking for is they're asking for equal bonuses for the World Cup tournaments because players get the team that wins get us a bonus as well they want that to be equal between men and women and yeah they just the US soccer won't give it to them the court case will start on the 5th of May and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what's happening and hoping justice will be done. It's going to be a fascinating verdict and it will have wider implications on the women's game, not just for the US Federation, but for all the federations in general. The precedent it will set will be seismic potentially for women's football.
normally we have a section on here where we tell you about all the great games that you have to look forward to to watch. Obviously, coronavirus has sort of destroyed that possibility. But what we thought was we would recommend a few games for you to catch up on on the FA player. Uh, you should really try and watch the England-USA World Cup semi-final. Kyra and I watched it together and it was nail-biting. It was much better than the She Believes Cup version, I'll say that for sure. Yeah, much better. If you're looking for great WSL action, we've got a few fixtures to suggest. The recent Man City-Chelsea game on the 23rd of February was was brilliant. You know, great match of skill. Three all in the end. I shouldn't have told you that. That was a Spoilers. bit of a spoiler. Um, Chelsea Arsenal on the 19th of January that was great and the ending to West Ham Man United on the 1st of December that's a real real treat great games and great entertainment all over the women's game just a quick note touching on the WSL something's happened that we thought we should mention to you all Birmingham City have sacked Marta Tejador with immediate effect the first team coach, Charlie Baxter, is going to become the interim coach. So Tejador used to be the Chile and Peru national team coach. She's been in the role uh, in Birmingham for just over a year. But last year, Birmingham finished fourth. Now they're second from bottom. Tejador achieved two wins from 17 matches. She had to go. Exactly when that new manager's uh, first game is going to be, though, remains to be seen. Just like it remains to be seen when our next episode is going to be, listeners. That's our last episode for a while, potentially. But in the meantime, we're going to try and keep you up to date with new content that we've got coming up. We've got brand new ideas and features that are going to be coming up over the next few weeks whilst we're all in quarantine. So keep an eye out on our socials. We're on Instagram at football51pod and we're on Twitter as well at football51pod. And feel free to get in contact with us if you've got any questions about how the coronavirus might affect your team or any other questions or any other interesting topics you think we could discuss on the podcast over the next couple of weeks, we're going to need to be getting creative, so any ideas will be more than welcome. That's it for now. You've been listening to Football 51. Good crossing. And then wide. Brilliant finish. And here's the danger. Sam Kerr is away. Is this to be her moment? Miedemar. And Vivian Miedemar scores again. 